As we mentioned earlier, we're focusing this morning on Nehemiah, and our reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah chapter 1, and uh, reading all the way through chapter 1 into verse 6 of chapter 2. So the words of Nehemiah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad? When you're not ill, this cannot be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. In leading and in praying, Ken and Brian have both sounded an element of lament this morning, which is quite appropriate given the events of recent weeks. As Brian mentioned, we woke up to the news this morning of over 120 killed by a blazing oil tanker in Pakistan. The news that over 200,000 people in Yemen have been diagnosed with cholera, with 5,000 more people every day being diagnosed with the disease as a result of a war which has left 7 million people 
in the grip of famine, a war that's fought with weapons built and exported from this country. We've been appalled at the knowledge that we've been putting combustible cladding on high-rise tower blocks. All 34 samples tested by the government so far have failed the fire safety test. There's all the chaos and confusion of the evacuations in Camden. There's the van attack on worshippers as they left the Finsbury Mosque, Finsbury Park Mosque, earlier this week. We've looked with dismay at the inability of the Tory party to negotiate a deal with the DUP to try and form a government at all and think, how can they possibly negotiate a successful deal with Brexit if they can't agree a deal with their friends in Northern Ireland? And then while it's entirely trivial, those among you, and I know there are many of you here who are tennis lovers, will be dismayed. Andy Murray getting knocked out in the first round of Queens. Johanna Conte getting knocked out in the first round in Birmingham just seems to symbolise where everything is going wrong at the moment in our country. Closer to home, you may be dismayed at Jack's resignation in the aftermath of that or other things that are going on in Brighton Road. Maybe you have your own personal reasons just for feeling overwhelmed by events. If so, then you will be able to identify with Nehemiah's reaction when he hears that his people back home are in great trouble and disgrace because the walls of their beloved city have been broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Marvellous, marvellous video. Thank you, Ken, for that earlier. Despite the fact that he lived hundreds of miles away and actually had quite a cushy job, really, as cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah was deeply and profoundly affected by the news. He was filled with grief. He sat down and for days... He wept, he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. He found it's an issue that he simply couldn't let go of, or an issue that wouldn't let go of him. This wasn't a matter of simply hearing bad news and coming to terms with it, reaching a point of acceptance from which he could go on living the rest of his life. Days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months. And four months later, Nehemiah still couldn't get Jerusalem out of his head. It even began to distract him from his duties with the king. And when the king asked him what the matter was because he looked so sad, that was truly a dangerous moment for Nehemiah. Because if you worked for the king, you simply couldn't get away with being preoccupied with your own personal problems, however severe they were. But as it was, Nehemiah found himself turning the matter over and over and over in his mind, and he just couldn't get away from it. The prayer that's recorded in Nehemiah 1 is no doubt a sample of any one of dozens he would have prayed day and night during that period to the God of heaven, and it's a prayer of confession. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. It's an amazing prayer. Because when you look at Nehemiah and say, well, what, what had he done precisely? Of what crime or sin was he guilty? Was he guilty? You can't really find very much. As far as we can tell from this autobiographical narrative, he wasn't 
particularly disobedient to God, who's actually quite keen on doing the right thing. So why make this kind of confession to God? Even though his own conscience may have been perfectly clear, in his heart, he identifies with the people of Jerusalem in their plight. As a whole, the nation of which he was a member had brought disaster on their own heads. The outworking of their disobedience had been that God had sent them away into exile. And even though the exile had officially ended, and the people had been living back home again for the best part of a century, everything was still a mess. They were still living with the disastrous legacy of their great and great-great-grandparents. And they still hadn't sorted their own lives out either. God had redeemed his people in faithfulness by his great strength and his mighty hand, but things still were not right. The repercussions of the nation's historic folly were still being worked out in ways that were costly and painful. And Nehemiah was acutely conscious of this. So even though he was not directly responsible for the plight of his kinsmen back in Jerusalem, even though he played no part in their plight, he prays this prayer of lamentation and confession because he identifies himself fully with them in their plight and distress. That's what prayer entails. Not about seizing and occupying the moral high ground. It's about entering into the experience of those for whom you pray. Putting yourself in their shoes. Identifying with them in their plight and distress. Even their guilt and failure. Accepting that their problems are your problems as you bind yourself to them in prayer and cry out to God on their behalf. I don't suppose any of us here have a direct connection with the victims of the Grenfell Tower Inferno. Yet if we have an ounce of compassion in us, we're not going to shrug our shoulders and say, nothing to do with me, because of course it is. Somehow, we are linked with that tragedy and disaster. The poet John Donne was absolutely right when he said, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main." If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. If any man's, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. If we have that sense of solidarity with others in their need, prayer is an expression of that to the God who made us all in his image. What about the man from Cardiff who drove his van into worshippers from Finsbury Park Mosque earlier this week? Rabbi Herschel Gluck has rightly said that an attack on a Muslim community is an attack on every single citizen in this country because we are one nation under one God, living together, working together, cooperating together in this country. And that's perfectly true. Are we, here in Horsham, somehow implicated in that man's murderous attack? 
His family have said that they're sorry and devastated. How come they didn't drive the van, but nevertheless they cannot help, help but feel somehow as if they are implicated by association with him in his guilt? What about us? We have no connection whatsoever to him, and we want to condemn his actions in the strongest possible terms. Yet we are still appalled that a British man should commit such an atrocity. That may be because in some way we feel that in, in some intangible way he represents our society at its worst. And if our society can produce a man who is capable of committing such a deed and of others who applaud it, then that reflects badly upon us all. So even as we condemn his actions in the strongest possible terms, we look deep within our own hearts and repent because he is one of us. And so we have to say, God, have mercy on us all. When in communities or families or churches things go wrong and people become upset, we all share in the pain of that. And that pain, that sorrow, that grief is what we express in our prayers. The recognition that we all belong to each other so everybody loses. There are no winners. So Nehemiah, hearing the plight of those in Jerusalem, cannot bring himself to say, it's their fault, it's nothing to do with me. He cannot disown them. He cannot dissociate himself from their plight. But he confesses their sin as if it is his own. Their failure becomes the burden of his own confession. Their plight becomes his need. Their disgrace drags him down as well. Their problem becomes one he can't simply shrug his shoulders and walk away from. He has to pray. Some people have a false idea of how prayer works. Cynics say that praying is just about making yourself feel better about bad situations without you having to lift a finger to do anything about it. One website puts it this way. It's natural to feel responsible when others suffer around you, even if you've done nothing directly to hurt them or to directly cause that state of affairs. You will get relief from that feeling of responsibility and feel at peace if you pray. Why? Because if you pray, you make God responsible. In that case, prayer means I don't feel bad anymore because God will take care of it. And I can eat my dinner without my conscience being disturbed by the plight of those who are starving in the Philippines or in South Sudan or in Yemen. But is that really how prayer works? No, it's not. Because prayer is not a matter of salving your conscience, a pious justification for inactivity. You can see that with Nehemiah. Because as he thinks and he prays and he mourns and he struggles in prayer, the conviction grows within him that he has to do something. He's cupbearer to the king. He is one of a handful of people who has access to the one man with the authority and power to make a difference access to the man whose regulations meant that the walls of Jerusalem had not been built. But notice how prayer draws Nehemiah into making decisions that will cost him personally. Yes, he has the ear of the king. He could ask his majesty to grant a favour and give permission for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt and he could carry on quite happily. It's a gesture. He's done his bit and if the king says no, what does that matter? He's played his part. 
And it, who knows, it may actually make a difference on the ground in Jerusalem. But it wasn't enough. The more Nehemiah prayed, the more he realised that God was calling him personally to get involved here. His connection with the people expressed in prayer drove him to action. This wasn't a project that he could pray about from the safety and security of his quarters in the king's palace 800 miles away. Gradually he came to the conviction that if his prayers for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt were going to be answered, if the disgrace and trouble were to be lifted from his people, that would need someone to get involved to make a commitment to seeing the job through, to accept the call of God on his life to abandon his comfort zone and take up a challenge that, humanly speaking, was well beyond his own capabilities. Prayer is not about asking God to intervene from the safety and comfort and security of our armchairs. It's about God aligning our hearts and our minds, and our wills with his purposes. And that can be costly. Had Nehemiah not prayed, the walls of Jerusalem would have remained in ruins. Prayer, on this occasion, made a huge difference. But not because God pressed some control button on his heavenly console to sort the situation out. Prayer made a difference because as a result of days, Nights, weeks, months in prayer. Nehemiah knew what he had to do. And when the moment came, there was a swift prayer to God and putting his life on the line by saying, may his majesty grant me permission to go and rebuild the walls of my home city. What about you? What is God calling you to do? When you pray, what voice do you hear in your heart and your mind? I've read a poem by John Donne. Adrian Plass is also a poet, though not quite in the same league. Uh, But let me close by reading you one of his poems. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rotten stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, Amen, I think. I think, Amen, Amen, I think, I think I say, Amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rotten stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say, Amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said. You could put up with the sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, Amen, a bit. A bit, Amen, Amen, a bit, a bit, I say, Amen. I'm not entirely sure. Couldn't we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say, Amen, a bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while and tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, 
Amen tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, Amen, I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then. Think about my son. Tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need? And man enough to go? Man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, Oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, amen. I said, oh Lord, I'm really scared. But I also said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, you love this world in all its brokenness and horror. You lay claim to our lives. You call us to be people of your kingdom. You call us to go in your name. To be lights in the darkness. Forgive us when the darkness dims our light. Forgive us when we're reluctant. Forgive us when we fail. And Lord, we look on a world gone wrong and we say, Lord, have mercy because we are part of all that. And so often we're more a part of the problem than part of the solution. If not by our own participation, then at least by our own indifference. Lord, have mercy. But we call you Lord. And so we pray that you would take us as we are and shape us and mould us and change us and use us as we offer you our lives, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.